When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. Johann Schmiegel, you've got the world's highest IQ. Yes, 247. Wow. Did you know that thanks to Salesforce with Einstein AI, everyone's smarter? Now everyone's an Einstein, just like you. But I'm the smartest. Not anymore. With connected data and trusted AI, everyone can give customers experiences they've only dreamed of. Oh, look, here's a few Einsteins now. Hey, hi. Hola, amigo. Everyone's an Einstein? It's okay, Johan. Let it happen. The number one AI CRM. Now everyone's an Einstein with Salesforce. Live from our nation's capital, this is Bloomberg Sound On. We're going to talk all about the policy prescriptions of the Biden administration. We're not going to hear any more about Operation Warp Speed. They're going to be calling it the COVID response. We're talking right now about 2024 jockeying amongst Republicans. Bloomberg Sound On. The insiders, the influencers, the insights. Biden has promised again and again that he will unite the country. Who do you think Biden has to watch in terms of moderate defectors? The House has been voting for this stimulus package basically for months. Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg Radio. President Biden tries to reset geopolitics on the world stage. I've got former officials from the Obama State Department and the Trump State Department together talking on a panel about what it all means for U.S.-China relations, Iran nuclear disarmament, peace talks, and, yeah, North Korea as well. Plus, we're going to head and we're going to kick the hour off heading down straight to Texas, where I'm going to interview Congressman Jody Arrington, a Republican from Texas. And we've got a lot to talk about, including infrastructure stimulus. And what does he think of his senator going to Cancun? First, though, let's get a market check from Charlie Pellet. Thank you, Charlie. My name is Kevin Cerulli. I am the chief Washington correspondent for Bloomberg Television and for Bloomberg Radio. We begin tonight uh, with the big story, and that, of course, is the ongoing economic trade talks and the situation in Texas illustrating a new need for there to be infrastructure. We're going to talk about geopolitics later on in the program, but let's start there, especially as we have our first guest uh, accompanying me along with Bloomberg Politics contributor Rick Davis, Congressman Jody Arrington. He is a Texas Republican representing the 19th Congressional District, which includes a large slice of West Texas. It's centered around Lubbock, and uh, and his district really does uh, is, at, is ground zero of trade policy talks. It's important to his northwest Texas district where cotton growers export 80 percent of their crop. OK, does everyone in your district have power, Congressman? Uh, most of us do have power. And at one point, at the worst point in this disaster, there were millions, four million, I think, plus to be exact, who did not have power. And uh, you're talking about children's hospitals and you're talking about water facilities where you couldn't get potable water to the citizens in, for example, Abilene, Texas, which is in my district. And and then you had large manufacturing facilities, uh, dairy operations. I have one of the largest dairy operations, the largest for powdered milk that are, you know, uh, shipped 
all over the world, and those folks had to shut down. And, of course, cows don't stop milking just because the uh, county has frozen over and the gas lines aren't working. So they had to dump millions of dollars in product on these fields. So it's, it's, it is, it's been catastrophic. It's wholesale. It's all 254 counties. And um, fortunately, things are thawing out, and uh, the clouds figuratively and literally are beginning to lift. And uh, we've got a lot of lessons to be learned, Kevin, for sure. Well, well, let's talk about some of those lessons, especially in terms of the power grid. Uh, do, do you think that there needs to be an infrastructure change in terms of how Texans receive power? Well, I certainly think that uh, the Public Utilities Commission, which oversees ERCOT, ERCOT is the independent operator of the electric grid. And there's a lot of questions as to why did they not have a the preparedness, the, the plan, for example, to have rolling blackouts in a systemic and organized way so that we didn't knock other generating units out, which caused further problems. I mean, why didn't we winterize our assets better? And and then, you know, why with a large portfolio of renewable energy, 25% almost of our entire power production in Texas is wind renewable energy. And uh, that's great. We're proud to have all the above in Texas, but it's still an intermittent source. And when the turbines freeze over, you need a base load of steady, predictable, and reliable power that's generally going to come from conventional fuels. So all of these things have to be better assessed, and we have to have better plans, and we have to have better communications, quite frankly, with the utilities and their customers, because there was a huge breakdown on that. Those are just some of the things uh, that, that uh, off the top of my head that need to be addressed. Congressman Jody Arnton is with us. He is a Republican from Texas, western part uh, of, this, uh, of the state. And, uh, you know, I got to be candid here. You know this. I've been talking to Democrats all week who are saying that uh, the situation and the crisis down in Texas only exacerbates the conversation of the need for infrastructure. Do you agree with that? I, I spoke even with a Republican, the former Energy Secretary, Dan Brulette, this week, uh, and he said he thinks that there has to be some more infrastructure spending in order to better protect uh, Americans, and in this case, Texans, from these types of catastrophes. Do you agree that there needs to be more infrastructure spending? I think we should. We definitely need to modernize and expand our infrastructure across the board, energy included. Uh, we had a major transportation bill that went beyond just transportation. The highway bill included infrastructure beyond that. It, it didn't go anywhere last session. It was a purely partisan run. I hope we have a bipartisan product, but certainly, Kevin, making the investment in America's infrastructure is critical. I think that's one element, but I think managing those assets within the infrastructure and making sure that the incentives are aligned and that people are prepared is, is another component. So I think, it's, I think that all of the above has to be looked at. All right, and, and then you got the energy issue. I mean, and, and, and this issue, you know, uh, I think candidly, as, as you've been out and you've said, you've said that it shows that the U.S. Uh, can't just uh, rely uh, solely on, on renewable energy. Well, you know that this is a very divisive, divisive debate, uh, a polarizing debate. But is there any common ground that can be forged here uh, between the two parties or is this just going to be left versus right? 
Well, there, there, there are extreme views on the left and the right on this issue of our energy portfolio. We can all agree that, that safe, affordable, abundant energy is critical to us being the envy of the world economically and having a lot of choices we would not otherwise have from a geopolitical or national security perspective. I think you've got to recognize renewable isn't as steady and predictable, but we have accelerated technology and we continue to. And I think as you look into the future, it's wise to make investments in other sources of renewable because, uh, you know, the uh, oil and gas and coal is a finite resource. But we also have an abundance of natural gas, which burns much more cleanly and uh, it is much cheaper than than the other sources. And so we can't be hostile to fossil fuels and, and conventional fuels because, again, it gives us a quality of life, life and standard of living that uh, is an advantage and a blessing for our country. So you, you can't you don't you want to include to me the the technologies that we've seen advance in renewable, but you don't want to regulate completely out of business these fossil energy. 80% of our economy is run on fossil fuels. 90% of the world economy is. So it would be foolish to to uh, to dismiss that and to demonize that industry. We've got to be able to work together on both sides in a smart and strategic way for the best interest of the people, not one particular faction over the other. And I don't see that enough in Washington, quite frankly. Well, you know, I, I want to bring into this conversation uh, Rick Davis. He is, of course, the uh, uh, former campaign manager to uh, John McCain's 2008 presidential campaign. He's a partner at Stonecourt Capital. I mean, Rick, you and I have been talking about this situation and this crisis, really, down in Texas uh, for, for the past week. I mean, you hear it right there from Congressman Arrington just about uh, the, the debate that this has ignited in where I'm coming from, in Washington, D.C., uh, and in the halls of Congress. And, and, and there's it, it's the energy debate has really become one of the most polarizing issues in Washington. Yeah, Kevin, and I think, as you say, not, not only polarizing, but uh, it's very current. Um, you would have thought, after all the talk of the last four years, that we've had this energy independence and incredible growth in in, in gas resources, as the congressman points out, that uh, that we have, especially in the Permian Basin in Texas. I mean, they should be proud of the fact that, that they've been able to exploit these resources to the benefit of uh, people who have to pay for power. Um, I, I guess my question, slightly different isn't so much on the the source of that power, where it's coming from in the debate that's very intense right now. And as you say, partisan, uh, maybe something less partisan on the infrastructure side. Texas congressman has an unusual situation, different from virtually everywhere else in the country, where they have their own grid. <laughs> they have the Texas grid. It's not connected by and large to the rest of the country. And, and what I understand is primarily because they don't want federal intrusion into their regulatory policies. You think the opinion makers or the decision makers in Texas are going to have to relook at that strategy based on the fact that, you know, there were other parts of the country that could have shared electricity to help support Texas in their time of need? I think that is certainly going to be on the table. The legislature meets every other year and they are in session now. The governor has already uh, opened up an investigation on what has happened because there are a lot of moving parts here. Um, I think, again, 
ERCOT managing the, the assets, this was a once-in-a-generation storm. They had a lot of megawatts down because they typically in the winter do their maintenance because the peak season for us is in August. In summertime, August. sure, so, exactly. Yeah, so, so we had, uh, you know, it was that, quote, perfect storm where generally you can manage pockets like in my part of the country and up into the panhandle that – that get really cold, but but you should know that the Panhandle of Texas is part of the Southwest Power Pool, which is a FERC-regulated yep. uh, enterprise as opposed to, to, to the grid, as you mentioned, the ERCOT grid, which is 90% of Texas. So, yeah, I think that that's one element, but I really think it's the question is, does Public Utility Commission have enough authority, enough oversight authority, and are they exercising that uh, are they demanding that we have these winterization plans? Right now it's voluntary. Why would it be voluntary? Why wouldn't we have an expectation that we had that level of preparedness uh, for the 100-year flood, even though you're not looking for that to happen or this scenario to happen regularly? So, again, a number of things need to be looked at, um, and um, uh, but I think all of the things have been mentioned, including infrastructure modernization or tapping into other uh, sources of energy outside our grid are absolutely uh, uh, part of the discussion. You know, I got to be honest here, uh, and I'm taking a left turn because we're going to move away from uh, just a little bit. But in doing our, our team was doing our homework on you for this interview. And uh, my favorite movie of all time is Rudy. And I love it because it's about Notre Dame. I'm not even a Notre Dame football fan, but I just love the story of Rudy Rudiger. And he's a walk-on. I don't know if anyone's ever seen the music or, or heard the music or, or seen the movie. He's a walk-on on Notre Dame football. You didn't even play high school football, and you were a walk-on for Texas Tech. Tell me that story real quick. Well, I, it's, you know, I did not expect this question, but yeah, I had. You know, that's what I do. You're not going to expect my Ted Cruz question next either. But go ahead. No, no, uh, that one I may be more prepared for. This one, <laughs> look, I wanted I, to ask uh, him that. <laughs> I had my one, my, my one minute of, of glory. I didn't, uh, uh, you know, I didn't play high school football, so I would not recommend for uh, health reasons uh, anybody repeating my mistake and playing trying to play division one football, but I tell folks I walked on to play football at Texas tech and I limped off after the spring football <laughs> game. When they gave me my, my two minutes of fame, I actually ended up tackling a guy because I was so poorly trained at the fundamentals that I tackled him by his head and my finger went into his ear hole and it broke off the tip of my finger. So yeah, I wouldn't say that in Rudy, they carried him out on their shoulders uh, in, in glory and mine, they, 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 they carried me out on a stretcher in shame. Wow. Well, well, kind of, I think there's some parallels to my transition from print to television and radio, <laughs> but I'll, I'll leave that on another day. It's a Friday show. I'll keep it, uh, I'll keep it serious. Okay. Joking aside. And, and I mean this seriously, there are millions of Texans who are wondering what was Senator Ted Cruz thinking going to Cancun, Mexico. I'm not going to pile on with the, the political Twitter Aussie and, and all of that. But seriously, for an elected official in a time of crisis to bail on the scene, that's got to make you frustrated. Well, I, look, he has already acknowledged it was tone deaf, so that's, I, don't, I think that should be enough. Um, I'm glad he's back in Texas. And 
I also, as a as a father of three young children, understand in this in this business, which is busy and hurried, and he has the entire state. I've got 29 counties. You know, you take advantage of opportunities to be with your kids, and sometimes that can blind you to other considerations. So I'm I give him the benefit of the doubt that it was just tone deaf. He was focused on spending some time with his kids. That's a that's a laudable thing as a dad and. Uh, uh, you know, and he's back home in Texas. So we got enough to focus on to get out of the woods here on this. We're almost there. And I'm, like I said, I'm glad he's back. So, so, so we'll take this. Is... Re- so you're not, you're not echoing the calls that some Democrats are making for him to resign. <laughs> I think that's ridiculous. And uh, no, no, I don't think he needs to resign. Um, we all exercise uh, judgment that is less than perfect. Um, I know I do. Um, I just don't have the profile of Ted Cruz. And uh, I know he's got a lot of folks paying attention to every move he makes. Um, but uh, most of the moves he makes, I think, are, are good and in the best interest of not only Texas, but our country. So, Congressman Jody Arnington is with us. He's a Republican from Texas. You guys are talking about a $1.9 trillion stimulus deal that is continuing to make its way through Congress. Are you supportive of this? Is it too much money? What do you want to see included in it? Uh, and, and you know, I mean, when is it going to get passed? Well, I, I'm going to try not to be partisan about it. I just want to state what I think are the facts. The first answer to your question is uh, I absolutely will not support this. And it's not like we haven't worked together. I've supported the last five that we've done together. We've, we've basically put together $4 trillion worth of COVID relief and, and, and recovery stimulus. This one is, is going to be purely partisan. You won't, I don't think you're going to get a single Republican in the House on it. And so the turkey is getting stuffed with things that are anything but COVID relief. And quite frankly, things that are uh, antithetical and contrary to the needs of recovery, like paying people more to be on unemployment than on the payroll. I think that's a big mistake. We've made it before earlier. I thought we'd learn from it. There's a bailout for union pensions. That is a problem, Kevin, but not one we need to solve under the guise of of, uh, of COVID relief. Um, and, and there are many more. The federal mandated wage, let's debate the minimum wage, but don't stick it in a COVID-related relief package. And no, the cities and states don't need $350 billion. We know from, from, from data that it's 50 or less billion in lost tax revenue across the country. That's the cumulative tax loss at states in the union. So uh, where is all this other money going? Uh, that's a problem for me, especially when you're $28 trillion in debt, $4 trillion deficit spending last year. We've got to spend some money to stave off a further and worse crisis, but we've got to consider the fact that somebody's going to pay the tab on this, and if we're not targeted in our policies, if we're not temporary in the nature of our policies to help our fellow Americans get back to their feet, we're going to have a far worse sovereign debt crisis or or something of that effect for our children and grandchildren. I just don't think it's wise for policymakers to – to operate the way I've seen out of this last, you know, almost $2 trillion COVID relief package. 
Congressman, picking up on that a little bit, because, I mean, we know that we've already invested an enormous amount, $4 trillion almost, in, in COVID relief. And some of those same provisions you point out that you uh, supported or Congress supported in a bipartisan way uh, during the Trump administration uh, uh, aren't getting the same level of bipartisan support today. And, and arguably, I don't think anybody sees the end of the crisis right now, right? I think we've all agreed on one thing, right, that this isn't just going away. And so, so if, if, if you remove some policies that are clearly not going to make it through the Senate, well, I say clearly, the debate will be stiff on things like the minimum wage increase. Can you see there being a compromise package that could have come out of the House if there had been more uh, bipartisan engagement, uh, you know, in, in excess of um, you know, uh, the policies or the, or the uh, budget levels of a trillion dollars? Uh, is, it, is it all about the money or is it about the programs? It's a little bit of both, but it wouldn't be as much about the money if you didn't have massive bailout programs embedded in it. So it's a little bit of both. But um, I think, for example, President Trump was big on more cash assistance. He didn't think the amount that we had, $600, was enough to do anybody any good. You know what? I'm not a big cash assistance guy. I'm a fiscal hawk. I'm in a, yep. in a very conservative part of the country. But I agree, if you're going to help somebody in a very unconventional circumstance with an unconventional you know, way, I mean, a lot of these things are very out of the box for government, but this is an unprecedented disaster. I would say that's probably true. 600 is probably not going to help some, some fellow American that's still struggling because their industry hasn't quite recovered. Um, but but I, I actually offered an amendment on ways in the during the Ways and Means Committee markup and said, let's do this. I'll support that. But you have to have an economic harm test. That is, if you've had no economic harm, you haven't lost. The test was you have to have lost 10 percent of your annual income year over year from 19 to 20. If you have, then you get this uh, additional cash assistance. If like a you, means test for if, that policy, right? Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. And candidly, if, if you've even got to get the calculator out to do the math, chances are you don't need the check. But can I, can I just exactly. follow up on this? Because this is really important. Yeah. You know, you mentioned uh, specifically about uh, making, uh, about raising the question that if, if people don't need the financial assistance, that maybe they shouldn't be getting the money. Okay. But, and you said maybe some industries, uh, you know, haven't gotten out of the pandemic yet. Well, let's be candid here, Congressman Arrington. Some industries aren't coming back and some people aren't going to be able to return to their jobs, particularly Americans who are in, in, in lower income jobs. There's no money in the stimulus for retraining. There's no money in the stimulus for building a ramp for new industries in a post-pandemic economy. Are policymakers, is this even on their radar I wish people thought ahead like you just described, but they don't. And we don't fix the even the roof until it's leaking or until the hundred year flood. And and so or I or the I, blizzard I, I, in I Texas. Like, yeah. Well, I just think that that sort of bigger picture, forward looking investment would make sense. But instead, I think we're looking back too much. And we're providing monies that I don't think are going to make much difference. Some people will get money that don't need it and haven't had any economic harm. Some people are going to get paid more to be on unemployment. 
you know, the, the list is, I think, pretty long. It's not that there wouldn't be a targeted way to address some of the gaps that exist. But remember this, guys, a trillion dollars is still out there unspent. Look at the state and local monies for assisting them. Look at the education monies. Almost in every category, you have tens, if not hundreds of billions of dollars unspent. This, to me, is is egregious as a fiduciary, the taxpayer, that we're talking about $2 trillion when we've got a trillion that we haven't seen work through the system to make sure that it's meeting the desired you know, effect. Quickly, uh, Senator Mitt Romney has introduced legislation uh, that would raise uh, the minimum wage and it would provide a tax uh, credit for uh, upwards of $2,000, I believe, for, for, the, for the child tax credit. Are you supportive of those measures? I'm not, because the minimum wage is going to hit about a million and a half jobs, taking them completely offline. It, it hurts working people more than it helps them. The market sets the price, sets the wage. There are opportunities to be mobile in this robust and diverse American economy. Yeah. It, it doesn't work. To me, it's just you're trying to cover the – you're Gotta just moving it things around, but it's still bad. Congressman Jody Arrington, an Eminem fan – and the walk-on, a college walk-on. Appreciate the time. That's my favorite U2 song. I'm Kevin Cirilli. This is Bloomberg. You're listening to Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg Radio. My name is Kevin Cerulli, and I am the chief Washington correspondent for Bloomberg Television and for Bloomberg Radio, and I'm accompanied by Bloomberg Politics contributor Rick Davis. We begin this half hour with the big geopolitical developments of the day. President Biden making his first international address as president virtually during the Munich Security Conference. I've got sound on his message, which is America is back. We have to push back against the Chinese government's economic abuses and coercion that undercut the foundations of the international economic system. Everyone, everyone must play by the same rules. He had a lot to say, not just about China, but also on Russia. Here's the sound on that. The Kremlin attacks our democracies and weaponizes corruption to try to undermine the, our system of governance. Russian leaders want people to think that our system is co more corrupt or as corrupt as theirs. But the world knows that isn't true, including Russians own, Russia's own citizens. And he also had a message for NATO. Here's the sound to the Western allies. The United States is fully committed to our NATO alliance, and I welcome your, Europe's growing investment in the military capabilities that enable our shared defenses. Joining us now for the next half hour, Hagar Shamali. She is the CEO of Greenwich Media Strategies, former Treasury spokesperson for terrorism and financial intelligence, also the host of Oh My World on YouTube, and his, making his first appearance on Bloomberg Sound On, Len Khodorkovsky. He is the former Deputy Assistant Secretary for Global Public Affairs at the State Department, serving uh, also as a former senior advisor to the U.S. Special Representative for Iran, uh, under, of course, former Secretary of State Mike Pompeo. Hagar, Len, great to have you both with me. I want to start just with your broad takeaways from President Biden's first major geopolitical address. Len, I'll start with you. 
Uh, uh, thanks a lot. It's great to be on with you. Um, well, I mean, I think the big message uh, from President Biden was, I'm not Trump. Uh, and that's, I guess, <laughs> that, is, that, that, that is what uh, he thought that our European allies needed to hear, um, which is fine. I get that uh, strategic positioning. Uh, but it's a lot easier to uh, to say things that our uh, our allies want to hear. It's a lot harder to uh, for all for all of us to make hard decisions on on things that are uniquely priorities for the United States, which there are. Uh, of course, there are plenty of things that we uh, that, that that we have in common, and it's important to cooperate with uh, all of our allies. And I would just say it's it's important to co- to cooperate not just with our European allies, but our allies worldwide, which the Trump administration uh, actually did. And uh, you know the the proof proof in the pudding there was uh, uh, a rejuvenated cooperation with our allies in the Middle East, which produced Abraham Accords, uh, mm-hmm. a rejuvenated quad with India, Japan, Australia to to counter China's influence uh, uh, in Southeast Asia. So. There's a, there's a lot that we have in common, and we should continue cooperating on things that we align on. But it's also important uh, to to speak frankly to our allies, and I'm sure they'll agree that uh, there are certain things that we we need to uh, agree to disagree about. And Hagar, I think I think that's an interesting point that that Len raises, and we're going to unpack some of that, especially on China, as our conversation unfolds. But uh, before we do that, what were your takeaways, Hagar? Well, I think that, you know, President Biden is very focused on putting the United States on the global stage, right? He has said this a number of times, and he has focused on reinforcing the relationship with the allies to achieve those goals. And so whereas President Trump pursued a lot unilaterally, except for the Abraham Accords, as, as, as Len mentioned, and a few other things, this administration is going to look toward pursuing its goals in China or Iran or Russia very heavily with its allies in tow. And so the issue there is that, you know, a multilateral approach can be very successful in terms of having something long-lasting. Where the administration, and this is where I thought, where something that I noticed with, with President Biden's speech, where uh, they're going to have to walk a fine line is where President Biden has been very clear on behavior that he will and won't tolerate, right? He has talked about China's human rights abuses. In fact, there are a lot of goals regarding China that I think both President Biden and former President Trump uh, agree on. Um, it's the tactics that are different. And, uh, and so President Biden, to me, seems like he's putting in a very big effort to, to show the world that we're not going to stand for this behavior in China or Saudi Arabia or Russia you know, that, or Turkey, that when we see this type of nefarious behavior or, or, uh, or human rights abuses or things that we don't stand for or tolerate, he's going to say it very clearly. And at the same time, he's going to need to walk a fine line where he also gets the allies in tow. Um, and so that's how I viewed uh, his statement today. Yeah. Hey, I was wondering if we could unpack a little bit more on Russia, because that did seem to be the one area that had the biggest difference between the treatment in the Trump administration and what seems to be the future in the Biden administration. I mean, Joe Biden today, the president said that Russia is an adversary, kind of the toughest language he used with anybody he talked about today. He talked about Ukraine, uh, a, a, a festering problem in the in the region, but he also talked about cybersecurity. We know the Solar Winds project that uh, had links to the Russian foreign intelligence has been a, a major issue internally in the U.S. Um, how do you see, Len, uh, uh, this new administration taking on uh, Russia as a, as a topic, and, and Hagar, maybe if you could come in after him to, to give your point of view. 
And we got to well, keep mean, this part quick. We got like 45 seconds on, so go ahead. <laughs> sure. I, I, listen, I, I welcome focus on Russia and where I would start with our, our friend in Germany, where Russia is slated to build Nord Stream 2, a pipeline that will, uh, that will you know, provide a lot of cash to Russia. And I, so I, I welcome cooperation with our, with our European allies to focus on, on the energy issue and, of course, cybersecurity as well. You know, and, and I think it's a really fascinating point, especially just to hear the pressure that the Trump administration put on uh, European allies uh, and versus the, the tone both that, that all three of you are mentioning, the tone shift uh, from the Biden administration, which is just saying, all right, we want to see you. We want to see you on board. Much more with the panel coming up next. Great conversation. I'm Kevin Cerulli. This is Bloomberg. You're listening to Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg Radio. I'm Kevin Cirilli, Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg TV and Radio. Rick Davis is with me, Bloomberg Politics contributor. Special programming note coming up on Monday, an exclusive interview with Senate Intelligence Committee Chairman Mark Warner. The Democrat from Virginia is going to join me uh, for a special conversation about the SolarWinds saga, really, and this hearing that's going to be on Tuesday of next week about the intelligence community. Marco Rubio is the top Republican on the on the Intel uh, Committee in the Senate, and they're really investigating about what happened with SolarWinds. So, be sure to tune in on that for that conversation. Uh, joining me now, uh, none other than Len Kodorkovsky. He's the former Deputy Assistant Secretary for Global Public Affairs at the State Department under uh, Mike Pompeo, and he works specially in the Iran portfolio. Uh, and I got to tell you, uh, Len, uh, this is your first time on the program. I know you'll be back. We, me and Christine Barada, our, our executive producer, we were talking. We, we're so used to talking with you behind the scenes. We said, Len's pretty good on air. Len, what have you been up to since you got out of the State Department? Uh, well, you know, it's been my uh, my, my big uh, uh, reveal, I guess. Uh, you know, <laughs> during, during my, my during my time at State Department, I, uh, I usually work to get uh, you know my my bosses on air and some airtime. So it's it's nice to be out there and. Um, yeah. It's your big moment. To say. You're stepping exactly. in front of the bright lights. He's been down in Florida. I got to be honest. He's, you know, it's been snowing here in Washington, and now he's like, he's sending, he's with palm trees and kept getting some well deserved R and R time after traveling the world uh, during the past four years. Cigar, you're the CEO of Greenwich Media Strategies. Cigar Shamali, she's the former Treasury spokesperson for terrorism and financial intelligence. She's got this great show on YouTube called Oh My World. I was talking to you earlier today about what your topic is, and it's about protests in Haiti. What can you tell us about us? Give us a little preview. Yeah, I cover a bunch of things today. One of them is the, are the protests in Haiti. Um, Kevin, as you know, one of my frustrations is lack of, of uh, coverage of these types of events, especially where there's such a close, you know, where, where U.S., uh, what we say in the United States really matter. And so there are these protests in Haiti against the president there who's wildly corrupt and who um, has been unable to pull his country out of out of poverty there's 60 percent there are live in poverty where uh, crime is growing um he's kind of robbing the nation so there have these been these thousands of protests and the issue there is that um if we don't really speak up uh the problem is that we may pay a very heavy price tag later because you could risk a refugee crisis here right you've got this is a, an island that's 800 miles off the coast of florida 
So um, you could have Haitians come here. You could have some migration that's illegal. Um, and you could, um, and we may end up paying, paying to fix it later. And so it's one of the things I argue in my show this week that this is something that matters that, uh, that we have to heavily focus on. You know, it, it, there's so much news happening beyond just Ted Cruz going to Cancun, folks. And, and people like Len and Hagar uh, really do a great job of, of keeping me informed, to be honest, about uh, geopolitical uh, affairs. Len, I want to come back to uh, something that happened out of Tehran this week, where you had uh, Secretary of State Tony Blinken and President Biden uh, saying that they would be open to engaging with Iran uh, on the issue of uh, direct nuclear disarmament talks. Tehran rebuffed the offer. And, you know, Aram is in your portfolio, and I I'm just curious for your analysis uh, on the developments coming out of Iran, especially given President Biden's remarks today at the Munich Security Conference. Uh, I think, uh, unfortunately, I, I think it's a, it's a huge mistake, and the way the, way the uh, Biden administration has approached the Iran, um, the Iran uh, uh, file is, is, is really, really... Um, not utilizing all the leverage that's been amassed over the last four years with with our maximum pressure campaign, uh, I know that they, uh, they they vehemently disagree with uh, the Trump administration leaving the Iran deal. But the reason we left the Iran deal is because it was a terrible deal. It, it did not make sense for American national security nor for the security of our uh, allies in the region. And one of the things that both uh, President Biden and Secretary Blinken have uh, talked about is making sure that they're in constant communication with our allies, uh, such as Israel, Saudis, and Emiratis, and Bahrainis, because they're they're really uh, in the crossfire uh, of the Iranian regime. And so it's it's one thing to make decisions about the Iran deal uh, in Europe. It's another thing to speak to our allies on the ground who have the most to lose. And I, I would also add that not just our allies on the ground uh, outside of Iran, but the Iranian people themselves. They are the regime's longest suffering victims. You know, I, I actually had a, had a good call with uh, a lot of dissidents today, Iranian dissidents. Um, and something your audience would, would be interested to hear is that uh, maybe a week ago or so, a group of 38 Iranian dissidents uh, wrote an open letter to President Biden. And these are, these are not Iranian diaspora members. These are Iranians in Iran who uh, put their freedom and perhaps even their lives in danger by signing this letter. And you be, you know, you may be surprised that the thing that they asked President Biden to do with respect to Iran policy is to stay with the Trump policy, stay with maximum pressure, because they know that the regime in power only understands, um, uh, you know, pressure, and the only way they respond is uh, when their backs are against the wall and they have no choice. What the, what the Biden administration has ended up doing is up front, giving up leverage, giving up concessions with, with nothing in return, just for the uh, you know, optics of, of, uh, uh, of resuming, quote-unquote, diplomacy with an interlocutor that's not really interested in going beyond... Uh, yeah. the yeah. JCPOA that was so Rick, troubled. But 
Rick, uh, I want before I just want to jump in here quickly though because sure. I think it's fascinating just in, in covering Trump and how Democrats criticized Trump for engaging with Kim Jong Un of North Korea, and now you almost have a reversal of sorts in terms of how Republicans are criticizing the Biden administration for offering to talk to Tehran. And I find it fascinating, Rick Davis, uh, that Secretary Blinken is saying, "Okay, we're we're willing to engage, but the sanctions are still going to stay on." So it's it's really f interesting to see, to to be able to listen to people like Hagar and Len who work intricately on these issues really dive into the details. Rick. Yeah, and I want to stay on that because I think, Kevin, you're exactly right. When you look at this in the lens of where have we made progress, um, uh, arguably, I agree with the sanctions regime in Iran, but you haven't actually slowed the the nuclear program down substantially, and you didn't do it during the uh, treaty period either. So what's really going to work? I mean, we have a, a moment. I think, Hagar, you mentioned you know, how people matter and what's going on in, in Haiti. And I totally agree with you. When the, when the United States speaks, it should speak volumes to the people in these countries. And you have elections coming up this, this summer in Iran. And during the, Biden, or the Obama administration, you actually had protests in the streets of Tehran asking for support from the United States. And we didn't really give it much. But what should we do leading up to these? Do we have a moment in time where the sanctions have had an impact and, and with the potential for a new uh, treaty regime, can we help the people of Iran? So, you know, I, you're, you're, you're talking to a, a lover of sanctions myself. <laughs> I worked at the Treasury Department for nine years on, this, on these issues, and, um, and I was a big believer that, uh, that sanctions, I mean, sanctions are what brought Iran to its knees um, in the first time around. And I think that the Biden administration needs to, you know, they need to know that we hold all the cards here and that they shouldn't be too quick to bend to Iran's demands, right? I mean, so now they've put out this formal formal um, request or for, uh, saying that they can formally, that they would uh, pursue negotiations. And the Iranians have said, well, you have to lift sanctions. And I think the United States needs to hold its ground because it's, it's precisely those sanctions that uh, that give the pain that that allow us to be in a position of power when negotiating. And, you know, with that, the lesson you learned, well, you are right, we did not speak out during those protests. You're talking about the protests, the Green Revolution in Iran, uh, I think that was 2009, and that was a mistake. And I remember I was at the White House mm. during the Arab Spring, and one of the lessons we learned during the Arab Spring, and it's not to say that, that the Arab Spring was handled perfectly at all, but um, one of the lessons learned was you can't, you have to speak up. You, the United States, we have a, we have a responsibility to, for that. Um, and what we say and who our presidents are and how, how our foreign policy is pursued matters very mm. heavily, right? Not to yeah. take this, I don't want to digress too much. I know you don't have a lot of time, but very quickly, the crown prince in, in Saudi Arabia has changed his behavior entirely in the last few weeks, well, maybe entirely, because he's afraid. He's afraid of what Biden is going to come at him with, right? That, that, that applies to Iran as well here and, and all these countries where... Um, I wish we had more time. I really do. Yeah. And, and I hate to cut you guys off, but please come back on. This has been a really fascinating, fascinating geopolitical uh, conversation uh, with Hagar Shamali as well as Len Kodorkovsky, uh, two folks who served in different administrations but are true public servants. Please, both of you, come back on, and I'm very appreciative uh, of your time. Uh, February is Black History Month, and Bloomberg Radio is celebrating pivotal moments in U.S. Black history each day. Here with today's installment is Bloomberg's Renita Young.
On this day in black history in 2002, Vanetta Flowers becomes the first black woman to win a gold medal in the Winter Olympic Games. She and her partner Jill Brackett won the inaugural women's two-person bobsled event, which was the first medal for a U.S. bobsled team in 46 years. But bobsledding was only one of the sports Flowers mastered. She participated at track and field, volleyball, and basketball in high school. And she accepted a track and field scholarship to the University of Alabama at Birmingham, becoming one of the university's most decorated athletes. Flowers' track and field background was a huge advantage in bobsled, and she quickly became the number one break woman in the United States. So in May of 2011, Flowers was inducted into the Alabama Sports Hall of Fame. That's Today in Black History. I'm Renita Young, Bloomberg Radio. And that does it for us, Rick Davis, Bloomberg Politics contributor. I'm Kevin Cerilli, Chief Washington Correspondent. And Monday, Chairman Mark Warner. <laughs>